and we humbly ask that you would open your word to us, that you would uh, take it off the page and implant it into our hearts and souls, that the Spirit of God would be the teacher. He'd use me, let it be clear, that we've spoken with conviction, let it be accurate, Lord, and build us up because of it, so we might look more like our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. So, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 1. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have received a a chain letter, or maybe more likely today, a chain email? Right? You know, one of those annoying messages that you get that promises a great blessing if you will only pass it on. You have to pass it on. Pass it on to someone else. And it, it communicates that hundreds or thousands of people have been blessed just by reading it and then passing it on. However, if you will not send it on and you put it in the trash instead, you, you just don't know what is going to come your way. It could be disaster. And not just for you, but others as well. Now, one of the annoying things about receiving those kinds of letters or emails is generally you don't know the source, where it's coming from, uh, or what the real purpose of it is, because certainly you don't get a magnified blessing just by reading it. You can get the blessing from reading the scripture, but not that email. So the letter or the email that you receive remains unclear, unclear, and, and oftentimes that's why you hit the button, trash or you throw it in your circular file at home. But on the other hand, we've all received letters from people or emails from people that we know intimately, personally. And over the Christmas season, just take that as an example, we probably all received uh, communication through letters or emails or cards that, uh, you know, is from those that we hold dear, those that, uh, you know, could be from our long past or maybe, you know, just short past, but we, we love to get those. And quite unlike that chain message, we, we enjoy the messages that we get in those, uh, you know, letters or emails or cards because it brings us up to date. It brings us up to date about events that are happening in the lives of, of those people that we care about. When you go to the mailbox and you, you pull out what's there or you open your emails and, and you see who has written, you can get kind of excited about, because you see a familiar name. Oh, I haven't heard from them in a long time. And, and so you get kind of excited. You can't wait to open it up and, and read the contents and be encouraged and informed, again, about what's going on in their lives. Oftentimes they, they include things that you would know, but not necessarily other people would understand. You get it because you have this close relationship. You don't need to study the letter or the email in detail because you know the sender, and the sender knows you, right? So as we read the New Testament, which in significant part is made up of a chain letter or more than one, you know, a letter that was written that was intended to be passed on, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's what the New Testament, a good part of it, is comprised of. And, uh, and oftentimes, I think we have difficulty understanding the contents. And the reason 
the reason for that is that, that these letters were written to other people long ago and written by someone that we've never met personally. I mean, we, maybe we think we know Paul because we read about him or we read his material and we might think, well, yeah, a Roman church, that's like our church. But the reality is there are things going on in their world that aren't going on in our world and it's different. And so sometimes we have difficulty understanding it. And so at times we have to treat the letter or the epistles of the New Testament as, as a textbook, you know, as, as a book that needs to be dissected uh, to understand the material that's being covered. That's what Paul meant when he says, study to show yourself approved. You know, workmen who rightly handle, uh, rightly divide the, the word of God, understand it in its context and in its pieces. So we should quickly see that the, the need of studying the scripture bit by bit, bit by bit, so that we don't fail to understand the message that was intended by the author. I mean, that's what we want to get to. It's not what I get out of it. It's what the author meant. Now, God's the, the original author of all scripture, but he uses human authors, and until we come to Rome, I want to find out what Paul intended when he wrote this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I want to understand how the Roman people would have understood what he wrote, because he wrote it for their benefit, and certainly for our benefit as well, because God intended that this was a chain letter that would be passed on to other people. Well, if you were here last week, you know that we kind of took a look at the book of Romans from a distance, uh, almost a bird's eye view, looking down on a forest, so to speak. We looked at it from afar, and today we're going to start entering the forest and begin to, to look at some of the beautiful details that help us to appreciate the full beauty of the forest. And... Uh, from the outset, I want to I want to encourage you: don't lose sight of the forest from afar. Don't lose sight of what we did last week, which kind of an overview of the book. And the reason I say that that we should keep the big picture in mind is because it helps us to understand the details and keep them in line, so that we don't distort the picture, we don't misunderstand uh, what we see in the details. And so I'll remind you that the big picture of Romans is threefold. First, Paul writes this letter to explain God's sovereign plan of salvation. That's ultimately the idea of this book, to explain in detail God's sovereign plan of salvation. The second reason he wrote it was to deal with the issue between Jews and Gentiles, how they felt about one another. He wants to show how Jews and Gentiles fit into God's plan of salvation. Those are those hard chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And, and then the third reason is because he wants to make it clear how the gospel, this plan of salvation, God's sovereign plan of salvation is to be worked out in our daily lives. It's very practical. So that's the big picture, remind you of that. And today, uh, we're going to kind of just briefly mention the first 15 verses, because the first 15 verses of this letter is kind of the long introduction to it. Um, it's the longest of Paul's introductory comments in a letter, but he, he, he does so because he has two intentions in these 
first 15 verses. The first is to establish an official rapport with the church in Rome, to establish an official rapport. And that's why, as we read it, we'll see that he uses official words, titles, uh, theological ideas, and so on. But he is stressing his relation to the church as God's servant. And then in verses 8 through 15, he's establishing a personal rapport with them. And and the language kind of changes. He's expressing his desires, what he wants to see happen, what he's tried to do. And uh, he wants to, you know, contribute to the ministry and the lives of the people there. And he wants them to contribute to very personal information there. So in these first seven verses that we're going to look at today, we see three things about Paul. And if you didn't already pick this up, but you're looking at your insert, look at the title of the the sermon. This sums it up. Paul's calling, his message, and his ministry. So one, two, and three, your blanks that you're filling in are calling, message, and ministry, right? So let's talk about his calling first. But let me read the first seven verses in one shot so we Kind of see it in its flow, and then we'll break it apart. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended, uh, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not have noticed this, most people probably would not, that that is one long sentence. Now, your translations might put in some periods and start new sentences, but the reality is it's one long sentence. Even in verse 7 where it says, to all who are in Rome, it starts it with a capital T, but it's following a, a comma. It's one long sentence, one flowing thing. So let's break down this one long sentence. And we first talk about his calling. That's verses 1 and 2. Reading that again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before and through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the very first thing that Paul tells us about himself and establishing his official rapport with the church there in Rome is that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. Filling in your blanks, you know, that's what you want. A servant of Christ Jesus. Have you ever noticed how in the composition of letters, not personal letters like, hi Spence, how you doing? It was good to see you, the, you know, three months ago when we visited Alaska. Not that those, but official you know, maybe business letters that you get or you know, letters that may come from ministries or that kind of thing. They're appealing for money and that kind of thing. Have you ever noticed that in the composition of those or in emails, again, it, you know, it comes in, in different ways, 
Or if you go to an event and there's a, a speaker that's going to be sharing, which is quite common, that there seems to be a lot of emphasis on titles, right? We have as our guest speaker tonight, this person, he is blank, 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 blank. He's got this degree and he's been in this uh, position. And, you know, I mean, it can go on and on and on. It's like five minutes of introductory titles, you know, and that kind of thing. And sometimes it's that way in a letter as well. And uh, it's quite distinctly different than uh, what Paul does. You know, I think the thought is that if you show a person's credentials, then the audience or the reader will be odd. And, you know, we'll pay closer attention. It's kind of like, we have this celebrity here tonight. Or this athlete. And it's like, well, of course I'm going to listen to this athlete. Or, look, I mean, he's won three championships. And it's just like, I better pay attention to him. I mean, that's why they do that. It's like trying to draw you in to give your attention. But Paul's not following that style. I mean, yes, he is going to go on and say, I'm an apostle. He's going to give his, you know, official office, so to speak, of being an apostle. But the very first words that he pens in describing himself is that he was a servant. A servant. And the Greek word that is used here, you can write it down, doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. Doulos. In, in midwifery terms, they use the word doule or Right? Dule? Dula? Yeah, which is taken from this Greek word. A servant helping someone, right? A servant. But this Greek word, doulos, is a, a word which would be better translated as slave. Slave. Now, most translations, in fact, I can only find one translation that actually puts in the word slave, all others have either servant or bondservant. And my own view is that uh, that choice was made because of a negative view towards slavery. And that's understandable. I mean, who likes slavery, right? Um, and, And so let's choose a word that is less offensive than calling someone a slave, a servant, you know, and kind of the I'm a servant by choice, kind of is kind of included in that. But when Paul wrote this letter, in the world in which he lived, it was filled with slaves. Not servants, not paid servants, slaves. Some estimate uh, that in Roman cities, and particularly in Rome itself, the city of Rome, uh, the percentage of the population that were slaves was quite high, 50% or more of a population. In Rome, I think it was, they estimated it could have been 70 to 80% of the population could have been slaves. What does that mean, slaves? Well, it means that they were owned, owned by a master. They belonged to someone, and that's the word that he uses here. I mean, the distinctive thing about the concept of the doulos, the the slave, was the subordinate and obligatory and responsible nature of a slave's service in relation to his master. I mean, that's what it's about. Uh, The word highlights a relation of absolute dependence 
and absolute obedience in which the total commitment of the slave on the one side corresponds corresponds to the total claim of the master on the other side. Two people, a, a, a master and a slave, and quite different in their responsibilities. Well, the readers would have understood Paul to mean this, that he was claiming to be totally owned by his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was obedient and subservient to him. And this shows, you know, the genuine humility of Paul. Right from the get-go, he shows his humility. Though he was an apostle, and he says that in this verse, and he had authority over those that he ministered to within churches, first and foremost in his thinking, first and foremost, he was a slave of Christ Jesus. Now Paul is affirming in the reader's minds that more than anything else, he belonged to Christ without reservation and that his ministry among them, among the Romans, that he's writing to his ministry among them, was related to that reality, that he was a slave of Christ Jesus, who was an apostle as well, but his his responsibility was to please his master. And why do I say that? Because Paul would say this in Galatians 1 and verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please a man, I would not be a servant of Christ Jesus. The same word, slave of Christ Jesus. So he places his obedience to Christ as a slave to his master in opposition to pleasing or being responsible or obedient or subservient to people. His focus is on his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he says. He's a servant of Christ Jesus or a slave of Christ Jesus. The second thing he says about himself is that he was called to be an apostle. Now, a more literal translation of this phrase would be this, a called apostle. Now, it essentially means called to be an apostle, but it's, it's abbreviated in the, in the text, and it emphasizes that both these words are, are important to understand what he's saying. Paul's not simply saying that, the, that people called him an apostle like some of you might call me pastor. Hey, pastor, how you doing? I mean, that, that's common. He's not saying that. He's not saying that people say, hey, apostle, how you do it? You know, calling him an apostle. Uh, the adjective called, uh, and that's what it is in this text, it's an adjective, uh, expresses God's effectual call. God's effectual call on Paul's life, both bringing him into salvation, but also bringing him into his responsibility as an apostle serving his master, Lord Jesus Christ. He did not, and, and by the way, this is as opposed to a, an apostle who wasn't called, a not called apostle, if you will. Uh, what that means is he did not appoint himself as an apostle, and he didn't receive his appointment from any other person or any other group of people. He received his from the Lord. In Galatians 1 and verse 1, he wrote, Paul, 
an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You see, there were others who claimed to be apostles, but they were either self-appointed or they were appointed by other people. And, and, and when you get to Second uh, Corinthians 11, he's like, uh, some of them are false apostles, false teachers. They, they teach a different Jesus. They're, they're not called by God uh, to be an apostle. Paul was not self-appointed or appointed by anyone else. He was called a called apostle. In other words, called by God. And, and the word apostle itself, apostolos is the Greek word, sounds very much like the English translation of it. Uh, it refers to this, one sent with a message or a commission. So you read the New Testament, you read about apostles. What are apostles? They are people who are sent with a message or a commission. And in a broad sense, it's interesting, it could refer outside of Christian lingo and outside of the scripture, but even in the scripture is used this way one time, where it refers to like a captain of a vessel, a captain of a ship who was given a commission to carry cargo from one site to another site. He was apostolized. And that's what the word, one sent with a commission. And you can see how that could be used in any kinds of settings today. An ambassador is sent with a commission to represent the president in the United States when he goes to a foreign country. Uh, you could have a, you know, in a business setting, you could have a CEO and then those under him, but those under him represent him. Uh, so it's that kind of idea. Now, the verbal form of this word which in Greek is apostello. You don't need to know. You can see how it's connected to apostolos or apostle. But this word is usually translated quite different. And it's translated as to send or to be sent. To send or to be sent. And understand it's sent or being sent with a commission or a message. So you think of the Gospels where this word is the verbal form of it is used a lot, and even the noun is used. And then you come to John's gospel in particular, and Jesus is frequently seen saying that he was sent this word, this verbal form of this word apostle. He was sent by the Father, and that he only does what he was sent to do. He didn't do his own will. He does the will of him who sent him. He, in fact, in a sense, carries the title, the sent one, the apostle. And in fact, Hebrews refers to Jesus that way. He is the apostle of our faith. He is the sent one of our faith. And Paul's using that term of himself here. Now, throughout, uh, you know, Paul's writing, we find some information about him. Uh, here, by the way, in this text and in his other letters where he uses this title, he's, he's using the very specific reference of this word, or the use of this word, to say he's one of the those chosen by Christ to be his representative and to carry the message of the gospel to, the, uh, to lost people. Now, think, if you will, if you know your Bible at all. In Acts chapter 9, Paul meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. Uh, bright light, and Paul's blinded, he falls down on the ground, and, and, and 
he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And, and Saul says, uh, and Saul, who's also Paul, um, he says, well, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. I'm the Lord. And Paul knew it was the Lord. That's why he said, who are you, Lord? He recognized this voice out of heaven was coming from the Lord God. Who are you, Lord God? Uh, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, the one that you've been seeking to persecute by persecuting my people. And in Acts 19, 9, verse 15, after Paul arrives in Damascus, he's blinded. The Lord goes to another servant by the name of Ananias and says, I want you to go over to Paul and minister to him. And Ananias, you know, didn't really want to do that. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of men. This is the way he's using it. He's a chosen instrument by Jesus to carry his message to lost people. That's an apostle. And then it also became the term used to describe or designate those men being the twelve and Paul. The twelve and Paul, you know, the twelve that were chosen in the Gospels. Of course, Judas was replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1, but the 12, and then there's Paul. And, and, and they were the leaders of the church in its foundational structure. And, and they were the ones who were concerned with establishing and caring for churches. That's how this word is used in the New Testament, an apostle. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it that way. It says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostle, apostles and prophets. So Paul is a slave of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle, one carrying the message of his master to lost people. And the third thing that he tells us about himself and his calling is that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. And by this statement, Paul's not specifically saying that he was set apart to believe the gospel, though that was true of him, and it is true of every person who knows Jesus Christ. They know Jesus Christ because they have been set apart by God to believe, right? But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that he was set apart for ministry of the gospel. He was set apart as a slave of Christ as an apostle of Christ Jesus who was to carry the gospel to other people. You see, one of the, what he recognized that one of the reasons God saved him was so they could in turn spread the message of the gospel to other people. In, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he, he identifies that he was actually set apart from his mother's womb. For this ministry. Listen, yeah, it's right before you. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And by the way, that's not at all unlike what God said to Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 1 and verse 5 says, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, 
I consecrated you, set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So Paul's in, in line with what God said to Jeremiah. Hey, I was appointed from the womb. Before I was born, God had this purpose for me to be a slave of Christ, to be an apostle that represented him, and to be set apart for gospel ministry. And of course, then in Acts 9, we see how Paul in time is actually set apart for that ministry. I've already mentioned that. In Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, they're in Antioch at the church, and they're, they're praying and prophesying and having a good old time uh, in the church there, and the Holy Spirit suddenly speaks to the leaders of the church and says, hey, set apart Paul and Barnabas. Set apart, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the gospel work that I'm going to send them to carry forth to the Gentiles. So prior to him being born, he was set apart. In time, he was set apart from his sin and set apart unto gospel ministry. And then another specific in time, years after he became a believer, years later, he was set apart to be this apostle who would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was for the gospel he was set apart. Gospel. What a great word. That word, most of you, if not all of you know, means good news. Right? Good news. He was set apart for good news to people. And this is what the rest of the the epistle is about. Not about him being set apart, but about the gospel of good news. We, we all understand, don't we, that we live in a world filled with bad, bad news, bad news. I mean, I think we recognize it more than ever with what's been taking place in the last two years with the pandemic and politics and what seems to be an increase in devastating storms and, and all of that. You know, we have a high alert on bad, bad news that is taking place. But the real bad news, the real bad news that everyone must face is that every person stands under the condemnation of a holy God and will receive his just wrath for being a sinner. That's the real bad news. But, <laughs> important contrast, but there is good news. There is good news, and that is that a person can be delivered from God's wrath through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul was set apart for. And it's important, by the way, that Paul actually adds that this is the gospel of God. you notice that? The gospel of God. We normally are going to think the gospel of Christ, right? But he says the gospel of God, which is intending to stress the origin of it. It comes from God. It is of God. It's God's good news to people. Now, we might not really easily understand the importance. I said it's important that he adds it. But we might not recognize the importance of it because we only think of the word gospel in theological terms or in church terms or in biblical terms, right? We think of it as a religious, in religious terms, the gospel. But the truth is, again, in Paul's day, it, it's significant that Paul includes this modifier because the Greek word evangelion, which is the word for gospel, 
had a, had a pagan, and by the way, we get the word evangelize from that word, from the noun, evangelion, evangelize. But uh, it had a pagan background even before it had a New Testament background. It had a special association with the emperor cult of the Roman Empire. You say, what, emperor cult? What was that? Well, emperors were thought to be gods, believed to be gods, celebrated as gods, not just mere men. And, and so if an emperor uh, had a heir born or that heir came of age or his ascension to the throne took place, it was referred to as Evangelion, good news, good news. So it's not unlike how many people feel when their particular political candidate is elected. Now, think back to 2016. I know that seems like ancient history, but think back. And how many conservative right-wing, you know, people thought it was good news when Donald Trump was elected? It was good news, right? Uh, quite the opposite feeling by those that were left-leaning or pro progressive. They thought it was bad news. And then the progressives or left-leaning people, when Joe Biden was elected, whether you think he was or not, you know, it was bad news to conservatives, right? And, but good news for those that were leaning left and so on. It's like, what a joke. Because it doesn't last. Good news, bad news, you know, and so on. Uh, but in the Christian use of the word, the only true good news that matters and will last forever is the good news of God. The gospel of God. So that is his calling. What a great calling. Well, let's talk about his message. That's verses 3 and 4. Let me read those verses again. Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul has just indicated that his calling included being set apart for the gospel, right? The gospel of God. And now he defines specific details about that gospel. And the very first thing that he defines about it is that it was promised. It was promised, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, Paul may be thinking in terms of specific prophecies, you know, maybe like Psalm 2, uh, you know, about the, the Son of God being begotten and raised up to rule over all the earth. Or Psalm 22, prophecy about his suffering and death. Or Psalm 110, the, that he is Lord of all. Or Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He may be thinking specifics, but he may simply mean that the Old Testament contained many, many prophets prophecies and promises about the Son of God and his work of salvation. Started in Genesis 3 and verse 15. The seed of the serpent would wipe out the seed, I mean the seed of the woman, Eve, would wipe out the seed of the serpent. Crushing of the heel, crushing of the head. First statement of the gospel found in the scripture. In picture, not, not complete information, but then throughout the Old Testament, 
And that's what Christ said after his own resurrection. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 47, he said to the disciples, uh, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, the whole Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written in those Old Testament scriptures, that the Christ should suffer on and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus made it very clear. The Old Testament promised his work, his, his uh, sacrifice. So people are mistaken. Let's make sure we get this on the table. People are mistaken when they think of the Old Testament as a gospel, not a gospel, as a statement of how to be saved through keeping law, keeping the law, and by sacrificing animals. That was never the case. Salvation is always by grace through faith, through faith in what God has revealed up to that point in time. It's always by grace and through faith that people have been saved. So in reality, the Old Testament is the gospel promised. And, and uh, that was through the prophets. And, and then the, in the New Testament is the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. So it was promised. Second thing he indicates about the message is that it was about a person, right? It was the gospel. The good news is about a person, not a... Uh, not a program. It's about a person. And the person, he says, was concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, you might not get this. This is kind of a grammar thing, but it is a beautiful grammar thing. Grammar, here's one of those times that really is your friend. The way this is written emphasizes that Jesus was God's son previous to and independently of him being born as a baby, his incarnation. Did you get that? He was the son of God previous to and independently of his being born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Hmm. So when it identifies him as God's son in the beginning of that statement concerning his son. It's emphasizing his pre-existence and his, therefore, his deity. Pre-existence to all things and, therefore, his deity. So Paul begins with the deity of Jesus and then he moves to his humanity, saying that he was descended from David according to the flesh. So, so the Jewish expectation about the Messiah was absolutely rooted in God's promise to David concerning his seed, one of his seed uh, sitting on the throne of Israel. You can read about it in, in like in 2 Samuel 7, uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, and uh, Jeremiah 23, and Isaiah as well. All through there are promises about David's seed would sit on the throne. And, and the New Testament, as you might know, begins with the assertion that Jesus was born of the lineage of David and therefore the rightful heir of the throne of Israel. Matthew, of course, records his lineage through 
his stepfather, Joseph, making him the legal heir of the throne. And Luke records his lineage, goes all the way back to Adam, but it ends up going to David as well as a physical descendant, physical heir of the throne. So both through Joseph and Mary, Jesus was, you know, a descendant from David. And, and by the way, the text literally says this, who became from the seed of David, according to the flesh. That sound just sounds different, doesn't it, than who is descended? Who is descended? I mean, it's talking about being born and being descended, but the way it's written is who became from the seed of David, according to the flesh. So Jesus was always the Son of God, the first phrase. He was always the Son of God, but he became more when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Did you get that? Something was added to him. He became more. And, and, and by the flesh, according to the flesh, he's not talking about sinful flesh, of course. He's talking about Jesus taking on humanity. He became a man. He became a person. And, and this is the same idea that John talked about in his gospel, in John 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten or the unique son of God. So the gospel, get this, the gospel hinges upon the fact that the eternal son of God became the God-man. Without him doing that, there would be no gospel of God, no good, good news from God. So verse 3, you know, dealt with the preexistence, his deity, becoming a man, uh, and becoming a man, his incarnation. And in verse 4, he moves to the other end of the spectrum of Christ's life, doesn't he? He goes all the way to the end of his life here on the earth, to his death and resurrection, primarily his resurrection. He says... He was declared to be the son of God in power through the resurrection. So he's already identified him as God's son in verse 3. And and here in in verse 4, he again emphasizes his deity. But but notice how he does this. He was declared to be the son of God in power, right? In power. In power. What What is that? That is in contrast to the weakness that he had being in the flesh. What weakness? Uh, Getting hungry? Uh, Needing his diaper changed? Uh, Getting tired? Needing to sleep? You know, all the weaknesses that we have, right? Being able to be tempted. Jesus felt all that weakness. But when he rose from the dead... He rose in power. No more weakness. He rose in power. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives, resurrected life, by the power of God. Crucified in weakness, he lives by the power of God. So the resurrection was the declaration that Christ was the Son of God with power. The resurrection is one of the strongest evidences for the deity of Christ. And if there was any question in the minds of the disciples before, there wasn't any after his resurrection. Tom already stole my thunder from John, John's gospel with Thomas. 
When Thomas saw him a week after he had resurrected, unbelieving as he was, he cried out, My Lord and my God. He recognized Jesus as God, his deity. So powerful, powerful. And, and, and it's kind of funny. At this point, he hasn't really identified Jesus, has he? God's son. Talks about his incarnation, his resurrection. But make sure there's no question about what he's talking about. He adds, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There must be no mistake. There must be absolutely no mistake that the gospel of God surrounds the person of Jesus, whose name means Savior, who is the Christ. That means he is the anointed Messiah of God. And he is Lord. He is sovereign ruler over all. There's no gospel without him being who he is. Well, this then is the good news of God, isn't it? That that Jesus Christ, who always existed in very essence as God, emptied himself and took upon himself the, the very essence of a slave and became a man who then suffered and died and bore the sins of fallen people so that they might be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. And the gospel was only possible if Jesus was both God and man. As man, Christ could die. But only as God could he raise himself from the dead, and he did. He said, no one has the power to take my life from me, and I have the power to take it up again. And he did. And because he's God, his death could have benefits for everyone. As a single man... That wouldn't have happened. But as the God-man, yes, that is good news. The bad news is, I have to stop there. That's really bad news because I wanted to get through all seven of these verses. So we'll pick it up and move on next week. But we're going to pick it up by singing a song called Facing a Task Unfinished. And you'll think about it today in light of what we've learned about the gospel and Jesus and Paul's ministry. And I would tell you that we we should recognize, we should recognize that like Paul, if we're a believer, we should consider ourselves a slave of Christ Jesus. We belong to him. We are blood-bought. We are his possession. He is our master. And we should be subservient and obedient to him. We owe him. We can never pay him back, but we owe him our obedience and service. And secondly, we, we should recognize that we have been called. Paul was a called apostle. We'll see it next week. We're called saints. Not, come on up, Nikki. We're, we're, we're called saints. Not like, hey, saint! But we're called saints. People who have been set apart from the consequence of our sin and set apart unto God's glory and for his purposes. So as we sing this, I'm going to pray and then we'll sing the song and then we'll be uh, dismissed. But consider the wonderful gospel that we've been musing on. Lord, we are thankful for this portion of the scripture that we've been in this morning. 
What a blessing. What a blessing to hear details about the Son of God, about his sacrifice for us, about who he is and who we are in relationship to him. And to hear what we are to be about the gospel. So thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.